My text is found in verse 6 of Acts chapter 9. And I want to focus on just one word in the verse. Uh, We read these words. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Uh, And the word that I want us to focus on is the word Lord. I believe it is a pivotal word. Uh, You know how events turn uh, on on maybe uh, certain things that happen. Somebody's in hospital and they're critically ill and the doctor comes out to the family and the doctor says the next 24 to 48 hours are going to be crucial. And there's a turning point perhaps is reached in that period of time and the doctor comes out and says, we've, we've reached that turning point and I see that, uh, that your loved one is now going to recover. That was a pivotal moment when that turning point was reached. Same situation happens in wars. Very often, wars are balanced on what we might call a knife edge. We think of the Battle of Britain. Uh, that was a pivotal time uh, in the Second World War in the defeat uh, of the German uh, aircraft uh, and uh, the navigators and pilots. And then we think of another pivotal moment in the Second World War, the evacuation of Dunkirk. Churchill expected to report that perhaps only as few as 20,000 had been evacuated, whereas in excess of 200,000 were evacuated. I don't want to go into the circumstances But we believe it was an answer to prayer because prior to the evacuation, the people had prayed as encouraged by King George VI and miraculously God turned the tide and God brought the people, many of them, uh, well over 200,000 of them, safely back to the United Kingdom. Pivotal times in our lives and here is a pivotal point in the life of of the Apostle Paul. There's a dramatic change that takes place. The first two verses in Acts chapter 9 say, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Here is a man, and he was full of hatred, It says breathing out. Literally, it means breathing in. He was drinking in hatred against Christ, against his disciples. And then he was breathing it out in acts of violence uh, against Christians and against women as well as men. And yet when we reach verse 6, we find the same man, that man who had been filled with hatred, using one word that signifies the change. When The Lord reveals himself to him. He says to him, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, we are told that no man can say that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Ghost. So the Spirit of God has entered the life of Saul of Tarsus and has changed his outlook from one of threatening, from one of slaughter, from one of hatred, 
to acknowledging the Son of God, whom he had despised as his Lord and Master. So it is a pivotal point in the life of Saul. And it changed. It changed his outlook. It changed his life. It changed his affections. It changed his eternal destiny. And the first thing that I want us to think about is how God prepared Saul of Tarsus for this moment. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon has a wonderful sermon, uh, not on this text, but uh, on another text, uh, that he has the title of Prevenient Grace attached to it. You're saying, what on earth is Prevenient Grace? Well, in a digital uh, version uh, of that sermon, they changed the word prevenient to preceding. Uh, But if we go back to the word prevenient, it comes from two words. Venere, which is Latin for to come, and pre, which means before. So it's something that comes before saving grace. And Spurgeon was pointing out that God often prepares someone whom he's going to save uh, by giving him uh, grace that isn't saving grace, but grace that prepares him for the tremendous change that is going to take place. Uh, And in the life of the Apostle Paul, we find in Galatians chapter 1 that something dramatic is taking place because the Apostle tells us about himself and he says in verses 12 uh, to 14, sorry, verses 14 to 16 of the chapter uh, that he had profited in the Jews' religion above many that were his equals, being exceedingly zealous of the traditions of his fathers, And then he says, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. So here's a man who says God sanctified him. God separated him from his mother's womb. He set him apart. We might say God had Saul of Tarsus marked out even before he was born. He had marked him out. He intended to save him. This man who would breathe out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, God had marked him out. He had marked him out for salvation, to reveal Jesus Christ to him, and he had marked him out to be a preacher among the heathen. Now, the fact that uh, God was preparing him didn't at that point make him a child of God. didn't matter uh, how much preparation there was. He had to come to that pivotal point. But God was preparing him. And God prepared him uh, in different ways. Uh, one thing that we see is uh, that this man, Saul of Tarsus, had the privilege of being highly educated. Highly educated in the Word of God, the Old Testament, highly educated in the traditions of the Jewish faith. He he knew the Jewish religion, we might say, inside out. He tells us he profited in that religion above many his equals uh, in the nation. He's talking about people of his own age. If you had gone into the schools and you wanted to find who was the best scholar in those schools, who stood out? It was Saul. The teachers in the schools would have said, Saul is first in every subject. 
Some scholars, and I don't know how they work this out, but some scholars reckon that the studies of Paul were the equivalent to two uh, PhDs. As I say, I don't know how they came to that conclusion, but that statement has been made. He not only uh, was schooled in the scriptures and in the Jewish traditions, he knew the Jewish religion, we might say, as I've said, inside out, but he also was schooled in the writings of heathen writers. We know that because in Acts 17, he quotes perhaps from two men, one called Aratus, who came from near Tarsus, and another called Cleanthes, uh, who was a teacher in the city of Athens. Paul quotes, he quotes two heathen writers when he's speaking to uh, the people, uh, the Greeks, mostly Gentiles, on Mars Hill. And then when he was writing to Titus, a minister of the gospel, he quotes uh, a poet by the name of Epimenides. Uh, and he, he, he tells what that man said. And the man was not very favorable to his own people. He was from Crete himself. And his statement was, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. And Paul, quoting that, says, this statement is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply. So here is a man, uh, before he's saved, he's very, uh, uh, very learned. He knows the Jewish religion. He understands much of the scriptures while not understanding that Christ is the Messiah. And he is acquainted with heathen writings. And then God gave him a natural disposition that was very zealous. He says he was zealous, exceedingly zealous, of the traditions of my fathers. When Saul of Tarsus did something, he put everything into it. Uh, here is a man, he didn't take half measures uh, when uh, it was needed, as he thought, to stamp out this false religion. He stood out. He was there at the forefront, exceedingly zealous. He hails men and women and he throws them into prison. He puts us all into what he's doing. And of course, when he became a Christian, when God saved him, uh, that same zeal was found. Uh, he was able to say uh, that uh, he labored more abundantly than the other apostles. When Christ revealed himself to him, when Christ saved him, he, uh, he had this background, uh, this intelligence, uh, this uh, scholarship, and he also had this burning zeal. Now, instead of trying to stamp out the uh, religion of Christ and the gospel, he was proclaiming it. He was suffering for it and willing to suffer for it that he might, as he puts it, by all means save some. So here is a man uh, who's standing out and uh, God is preparing him to change him and to make him a preacher of the gospel. But then we might add this. God prepared Saul by the witness and death of Stephen and by the lives of those he was arresting and taking to prison for trial and some to be put to death. God prepared him by the lives of those people. That's why we read that statement, and I'll mention it a little bit more in a moment or two. We read the statement, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. You see, what was happening was 
Saul was seeing something that he himself didn't have. For all his zeal, for all his scholarship, one thing he lacked. He lacked peace with God. And that was eating him up. He hadn't peace with God. And it was eating him up. You know John Wesley, I mentioned him this morning. Uh, He started that holy club at Oxford. Very religious, very devout. And uh, he was interested in people, visiting the poor people of the area, going there and reading the scriptures with them, helping out in every way he could. And then, as an ordained minister of the Church of England, he decided to go over to America to convert the Indians in America. When he was traveling over, there was a very violent storm, and he was afraid. He was afraid of death. He was afraid of facing God. He noticed that there were other people on the ship, Moravians, and they were perfectly calm. They didn't seem to worry if they were all drowned. They could sing, they could pray, they could praise God, and they could worship God. While John Wesley was troubled, and he made the statement afterwards that he had gone over to convert the Indians in America, and he discovered what he had least suspected, that he himself was unconverted. He hadn't peace with God. And Saul of Tarsus here, for all his zeal, and all his murderous intent to to bring an end to Christianity, he did not, even though he thought he was doing right, he thought he was doing right, he did not have peace with God. And the the Spirit of God was working through uh, people like Stephen, You see, we are told that when people looked on the face of Stephen, his face was as the face of an angel. I don't know what that means. But there was something, there was something otherworldly, something serene, something angelic about Stephen. Even when he was speaking against the wickedness of the Jews, the presence of God marked on his countenance, was very striking. And then we find Stephen, when they were enraged against him and were stoning him to death, we find him saying this, and Saul's present, he's not doing the stoning, but he's approving of it, and he's looking after the garments of those who are stoning Stephen. We find Stephen say, I see Jesus. Heaven is open before me. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he speaks up and he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And his last words recorded are, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. That's different. That's a different outlook. That's a wholly different spirit from the spirit of Saul of Tarsus. And it's troubling him. He doesn't want to admit it, but it's troubling him. And Christ says to him, when he meets with him, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The illustration, I'm sure you've heard it mentioned many times, is of the ox goat. A a, a long piece of wood, uh, sharpened at the point, perhaps with metal tipping. And when the ox wouldn't go in the right direction, or maybe wouldn't go, the farmer would prick it with the goad. 
And the, the ox, feeling the pain of the goad and angry, would kick and rebel. And the more it kicked, the more it hurt itself. Until finally it realized that kicking against the bricks uh, was only injuring and hurting its, And it had to stop and it had to yield and to submit to the discipline and control of the farmer. And Saul's told us, it's hard for you. It's hard for you. You're fighting your convictions. And you can see in the life of Stephen, a man who's at peace, a man who's looking to heaven, a man who expects to be in heaven, a man that the Savior is going to receive according to what he has said, a man who prayed for you and prayed for those who were stoning him to death. And then on top of having witnessed that, he had these Christians at the time of the high water mark of the church. You know, I suppose we don't live the way we should. We're poor examples of Christianity. This is a sort of low water mark of the church. But the days in which Saul of Tarsus was bringing men to trial and arresting them and giving his consent to their punishment, those days were the high water mark of the church. That was the time when the presence of God was very powerfully felt and known and marked. And so the Lord says to him, you've seen this. You've felt it. You're kicking against it. You don't like it. And what's more, all of this was bringing Saul's conscience to life. He was a troubled man. Because when the Holy Spirit is at work, conscience comes alive. The day of Pentecost is a notable example. There were tens of thousands of Jews assembled. Uh, they heard the preaching. They thought something strange was happening. These were the people who had bathed for the blood of Christ. They had said, away with him. Let him be crucified. His blood be on us and on our children. The Spirit of God came down on the day of Pentecost. And suddenly, the power rested on the other side. And Peter charged the Jews by wicked hands, taking the Savior, crucifying, slaying him. And as he preached and expounded the Old Testament scriptures, the fear of God fell on that vast multitude. And multitudes cried out and they said to Peter, to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pricked in their hearts. They were cut to the quick, we would say. And they were saying, what shall we do? That's what happens when the Lord comes down, when the Lord troubles a soul. And all of this was a preparation for a Saul of Tarsus to be converted. The power of God, the power of God is very real when the Lord comes down. There's a very interesting biography of a Welshman of a bygone age called John Elias. He went to a place called Rutland uh, where there was a fair kept and the fair was kept from time to time on the Lord's Day on a Sunday, buying and selling and uh, all that goes on with transgression and walking all over the Lord's Day. And Rutland, or rather Elias, took his stand in Rutland and he began to pray. People were noisy at first, but suddenly 
Suddenly the atmosphere changed as John Elias prayed and then he preached and denounced Sabbath desecration. One man on his way home, he had bought an implement in the fair. He was on his way home and suddenly that implement that he was holding, it was, it was as if his hand would, would cease to function if he didn't let go of that implement, and he dropped it by the side of the road. And as far as I can remember, that man, that man got wonderfully and gloriously saved. You can't kick against the pricks. When the Spirit of God is moving, if God has prepared you for salvation, if he has a work for you to do, he'll trouble you. He'll strive with you until he breaks you. And leads you to repentance and to faith in Christ. And the Lord says to Saul here, it is hard. It is hard. You're making it hard for yourself. Uh, You can see that you're not right. You know deep down in your soul that you're not right. You don't want to admit it. And you're becoming more and more angry and more and more threatening. You're trying to drown out the voice of God in your conscience. It is hard for thee. To kick against the pricks. But then secondly I want you to see. How God led Saul to that decisive moment in his life. First thing that happened. He's traveling from Damascus. And uh, Dr. Talmash. Who was a great American preacher. Contemporary with Spurgeon. uh, And Spurgeon was a great admirer of Talmash. He says that when the light shined. uh, That. Uh, the horse that Saul was riding on, uh, that it really was startled and it threw him to the ground. Now, much as I like reading Talmage, I, I actually prefer reading Spurgeon, I can say, uh, but much as I like reading Talmage, and there's so much that's sweet about his preaching, I've got to say that I don't agree with him. It's not recorded in the scriptures that Saul was, uh, was thrown by a horse. What it does tell us is this. There was a light that was shining, suddenly shining, above the brightness of the sun. And this was clearly, clearly something that came from God. And then there came a voice from heaven. A voice that Saul could hear, his companions could hear, but they couldn't decipher what was said. There's a little bit of confusion about this. Uh, as you read through the accounts here in Acts 9 and Acts 22 and Acts 26, but from what I can gather, they heard a voice, but they didn't understand the voice. Saul did understand it. It spoke his name. It said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? So this great light, we're told it's a great light in Acts 22, we're told it was above the brightness of the sun. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. A light brighter than the sun. And this was at noon. Middle of the day when the sun is at its peak. And it's out there in the Middle East. So it's a very strong sun. And yet there's a light shining brighter than the brightness of the sun. And then the voice. And whoever is speaking knows Saul. And speaks his name twice. That's usually a sign in the scriptures of urgency. 
God has something very important to say. He says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul, well, he he knew that light was supernatural. He knew that that voice was coming from heaven. He knew that that voice was for him to hear. For it said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And his immediate reaction was to find out who is speaking. Who is this speaking from heaven? And the answer was given. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Could you imagine what it would be like in this service tonight or in Market Hill, somewhere in Ulster, someone who has been an enemy of the gospel and the Lord comes to them in in a supernatural way and the Lord speaks their name so clearly and so unmistakably that they ask, who, who, who is speaking to me? This is not a seance. This is not some wizardry or witchcraft. This is real. This is God speaking. Now, I know he doesn't speak in that way today, but he does speak. He speaks in meetings like this. He speaks in gospel missions. As many of you, I believe, are saved. Many of you, probably the vast majority here, you come back for that reason. There was a time when God spoke to you and to me. We were sitting in a meeting. And we became very uncomfortable, troubled, because we knew we were sinners. We heard the voice of Jesus speaking to us, uh, not calling us directly by name, but describing us sinners, guilty, lost, hell-deserving, bound for hell. And we saw that there was only one way that we could be saved, by repenting of our sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. It was just as powerful as this voice that said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And may I put it this way. There could be no doubt now in the mind of Saul of Tarsus that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. He didn't want to believe that. He didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah that Christians claimed him to be. He didn't want to to think that way. Uh, And up to now he had been stifling his conscience and fighting his convictions, going against Christians with increasing ferocity. But now, now he's, we might say, standing with no defense before God. And after creating havoc and Attaching, for that word, havoc, it has to do with putting filth uh, towards the Christians. Not literal filth, but treating them as filthy uh, and as objects and fixing a stigma to them. For the, the word carries that idea, defiling them, ravaging them, treating them shamefully. Suddenly, he realizes, I was wrong. And... They were right. I was cruel to women. I was cruel to men. But they were right. And I was wrong. And the Lord is bringing very powerful conviction to bear upon Saul of Tarsus. 
I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's not my people simply that you're fighting against. It's me. It's me. Uh, These are my people. These are part of my family. They are, as the Bible says, the body of Christ. And you are fighting against them. You're persecuting them. And in persecuting them, you're persecuting me. Saul had been drowning his convictions. Now he can't do it. You know that people drown their convictions in different ways. Some like Saul with religious fervor. Oh, they fight with every fiber of their being for their religion, even though it's false. Others, they drown their convictions by plunging themselves into work. They would almost work night and day. You stop and you offer them a gospel tract and you speak to them. And you know what they'll say to you? I haven't time. I'm too busy. You know, they drown their convictions and they stifle their convictions by plunging into work. They can't get enough hours in the day for work. That's why you see so much that's uh, going on today. Uh, shops open on Sundays. Uh, farmers out in the fields on Sundays. And when they had far less machinery, they didn't need to do that. In a more re- devout and religious age, people survived without Sunday. And yet today, when they have all the facilities and all the equipment, so many of them are working on the Lord's Day. Others engage in endless activities and others just plunge into sin. Anything to drown their convictions. But for Saul of Tarsus, the crisis has come. He knows that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. He has a knowledge of the Old Testament. He'll have a knowledge of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He knows Christ died on that cross. He knows his blood was shed. And now he knows. Now he knows that he's alive again. He's speaking from heaven. He knows all about Saul. He has identified himself. And Saul knows I'm wrong. I'm utterly wrong. How will I respond? In fact, he doesn't even take time to think about it. He's convinced the Spirit of God is at work and he speaks that crucial word, Lord. You know that that word's a word of repentance. He never, he never, before this moment, he never would have addressed Jesus Christ as Lord. And it's also a word of faith. He's saying, In repentance, he's saying, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I've changed my mind completely. I've had a change of heart. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And it's a response of faith as well as repentance. He's saying, yes, I believe you. I believe you are who you claim to be. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you're the creator of this world. I believe that you're my judge. I believe you're the only one that can save me from my sins. And then, in addition, following on, there's surrender. When he calls Jesus Christ Lord, that word has the idea of of one who's your master. I'm not going to be mastered by the the Jewish uh, leaders. Uh, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the teacher, but I'm not going to own him as my master. I'm not going to find out from him the directions for the future of my life. You're my Lord. You're my master. You're my sovereign. 
That's what he's saying to Christ. And he follows up by adding these words. What wilt thou have me to do? Everything changed with the use of that one word, Lord. He has repented. He has exercised faith in Jesus Christ. And he has surrendered his life. From now on, from now on, you are my master. You are my sovereign. I'll never blaspheme your name again. I'll never persecute another Christian. I'll stand for you. I'll live for you. If necessary, I'll die for you. And he did die for Christ. As we find subsequently in the scriptures. Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as the Apostle Paul, is now a child of God. He tells us about being translated, and he's talking in general terms in Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And he speaks from now on of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I want to make one more point. I know my time is gone. From this pivotal point onwards, Saul was a different man, and he was a different man right to the end of his life. Uh, he, he was so changed that even the followers of Christ found it very difficult to believe that he was different. When the Lord spoke to Ananias and said, you go and you baptize Saul, he's in uh, a home there in the street called Straight. And he says, I've heard by many of this man uh, how he has persecuted the church. He has come here to Damascus with letters from the chief priests. And the Lord says to him, go your way. He's a chosen vessel unto me to preach my name among the Gentiles. He's different. The Saul you've heard of is the Saul before conversion. The Saul I want you to baptize and to lay hands on uh, is the Saul that I have changed, that I have met with and saved on the Damascus road. And Saul kept going. Kept going to such an extent that in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter in the resurrection... He speaks about the appearances of Christ to different people, including to more than 500 people uh, at one time, of whom the majority were still alive. And then, then he says, and last of all, he appeared unto me as unto one born out of due time. Uh, and he says uh, that he was the least, the least of the saints. You see, he's not proud Saul with his great learning now. He's a humble follower of the Christ that he had once despised. And he tells us, in humility but in truth and under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that he labored more abundantly than all the rest. He was more zealous than Peter. And Peter was a zealous man. He was more zealous than John. And John is the apostle of love who, who leaned on the breast of Christ it may even mean that he was more zealous than them all, all of them put together. How wonderful. All that zeal, all that learning now is put to good account. He's serving Christ. And um, we can say as well, the preparation, the scholarship of his past life now comes to be used in the service of Christ. You see, he, he preached before Felix, and Felix trembled as he spoke of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. He spoke before another Roman governor by the name of Festus, 
And Festus said, Paul, thou art beside thyself. You're out of your mind, Paul. He says, much learning doth make thee mad. So he recognized him as a scholar, an educated man. But all his education was being driven to one end, to the exaltation of Christ, to the winning of souls. He preached before Agrippa. Uh, And at the last, he stood before Nero at that most wicked monster of evil stood before him and bore his testimony before Nero right to the end right to the end Saul of Tarsus was a different man and he finished well he tells us in his last epistle and we believe it's his last Timothy 2 Timothy 4 I have fought a good fight I have finished my course I have kept the faith henceforth There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me it that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. We believe he was executed, that the sword uh, severed his head from his body. To think of it, he who once persecuted the church now lays down his life, lays down his life, in the service of Christ. Not afraid. Not troubled. He's looking to Jesus. The author and finisher of his faith. And the transformation. Indicated. By that one word Lord. Was a real transformation. And it's seen. By the lasting change. That took place. In the life of Saul. And now as I finish. The question comes to you. And to me. Have we repented? Have we repented of our sins? Have we turned from them? Are we trusting in Christ alone as Savior? Have we surrendered to him? We might sing it. I surrender all, all to thee, my Lord and Savior. I surrender all, but have we? Have we? We saw something of that this morning. Thy will. Be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have we surrendered all to Christ? Are we going on with the Lord? Could we express the confidence that Paul expressed and say, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Are we looking forward to that crown of righteousness? And if not, if not, I say, it is time to seek the Lord. Christ said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Oh, seek the Savior. Bible tells us in Isaiah 55, seek ye the Lord. While he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. Let's pray. Lord, we ask thee to apply thy truth to all of our hearts. We thank you for the conversion of Saul. Thank you for the change in his life. Thank you for the great love that he had for Christ and the great zeal in the service of Christ. Thank you for preparing him for the preaching of thy word, for crossing the seas, for traveling thousands of miles with the gospel of his Savior. Lord, help us to follow in his steps. Help us to yield the Son of God. Hear our prayer, we ask 
In Jesus' name, amen.